And another cool thing about this, I don't know, I think it's cool. It is adjacent to the White Sands Missile Range. <laughs> so as you're hiking through the park, uh, there's a chance that you'll find missile parks. Well, you and John were looking we for them. We were looking for them. <laughs> and it's not that we just made this up that, hey, maybe they accidentally dropped a missile. There are signs that say, if you see strange objects in the sand, do not touch them. That's right. Do not pick them up. Do not pick them up. Um, <laughs> Which is, I'm sure, great advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we travel to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today we're talking about a road trip we did a few years ago through the beautiful state of New Mexico. We are surprised by the huge variety of interesting and amazing things to see throughout the state. On this road trip, we visited several national parks, a couple of national monuments, two Bureau of Land Management sites, two historic churches, an alien-themed town, and a lot of breweries. And my favorite place of all, which doesn't fit into any of those categories. Did you want to keep that a secret? Yeah, I think it'll be <laughs> worth the wait. So thanks for tuning in today as we take you to New Mexico, the land of enchantment. Land of Enchantment. Where is that, Karen? <laughs> New Mexico. I thought it was very enchanting. Did you? Yeah, that's a good name. I, uh -huh. I would, Yeah, I would agree with that. I love New Mexico. We need to go back more often. We kind of forget about traveling there. We do. And we still have a lot of National Park Service sites to see in New Mexico. I used my new National Park Service app. You know the one we talked about in a recent episode? I was Yes, I remember that. <laughs> I searched by state, which is one of the functions. You just type in New Mexico, and 18 listings came up. So in New Mexico, there are two national parks, nine national monuments, three national historical parks, three national historical trails, and one national preserve. <laughs> so we didn't go to all of those, but eventually we'll make it. We could have used that app whenever it was that we were visiting because we missed a bunch of stuff. But we did. The, but the bright side is that now we have reason to go back. Mm -hmm, we do. So today we're going to talk about a trip we did in 2017 with our friends John and Lolly, and it was a nine-day trip packed with... Packed with fun. <laughs> I would I would do that same trip again. Yeah, I think it's a good itinerary. I think if you want to see more than what we did, you're going to have to go for definitely more than a week because there is a lot there. That's right. When we traveled to New Mexico, we flew in and out of Albuquerque for a couple of reasons. One, it's pretty centrally located. And two, at least from Seattle, there were a lot more flights and pretty inexpensive flights in and out of Albuquerque. So that's what we did. But you could do the same itinerary by going in and out of Santa Fe. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't be that much different. Right. Or driving. I mean, obviously, yeah, people could where, drive there. Yeah, from mm -hmm. wherever. Yeah, well, so we went into Albuquerque. And so our first... National Park site unit that we visited was Bandelier. And it's a, well, it's a national monument now. It's about two hours north of Albuquerque. And it's a beautiful, beautiful area. It has about 33,000 acres and it's in a, 
in a canyon. It's this rugged canyon, uh, kind of mesa country with a lot of petroglyphs and uh, dwellings carved out of this, the soft rock and the cliffs. And then there are some also the masonry built ancestral Puebloan homes there. So they date from about 1150 to 1550. Mm-hmm. It was pretty amazing to walk amongst those ruins and see them. Uh, So Bandelier was made a national monument in 1916, but back then it was very primitive. And it wasn't until the 1930s and 40s that the CCC built roads and trails and they built the visitor center, which is still the same visitor center. We need a new CCC. (laughs) We definitely need a new CCC. To build a whole bunch of new stuff in the national parks. Yes, that's a great idea. In case people don't know what we're talking (laughs) about, it's the Civilian Conservation Corps. Right. And it came about back during the Depression to provide jobs for, for a lot of people who were unemployed in the Depression. And they they used it to create all sorts of structures and trails and bridges in the national, not just in the national park system, but but in a lot of public lands. And a lot of the, that infrastructure is still being used today. And, and it's really remarkable. Yeah, we need a new CCC. We do. They could do all the trail maintenance and, and the backlog of all the issues that are <laughs> facing our public they lands. They could work on the Matt and Karen <laughs> Visitor Center. <laughs> Now, one thing you need to know if you're going to be visiting Bandelier between May 16th and October 16th, you have to take a shuttle into the park unless you're going before 9 a.m. or after 3 p.m. And the shuttle departs from the small town of White Rock, which is right outside the park, and it leaves about every 30 minutes. So that's what we did. We've been to Bandelier twice, and both times we took that shuttle. Very easy. I generally don't like the whole shuttle system, mm-hmm. but th- this was fine. It, it worked yes. great. Yes. The reason for the shuttle is because the parking lot down in the park is very small and it can only accommodate a limited number of cars. So if you go in the winter when it's not as crowded, you can drive to to the National Monument. Now, at Bandelier, most of the main attractions are in the canyon, which is called Frijoles Canyon. <laughs> and I remember you kept calling it Fritos or Frito-Lays or... <laughs> I like it when they name places after food. Yes. (laughs) This was not, it's not Frito-Lay. It's Frijoles. (laughs) Beans. It means beans. Bean bean Canyon. Bean Canyon. I'm not a huge fan of beans, but I'll take it. Uh, Yeah. They should name more things after food. They should. We're still waiting for something that's named after Cheez-Its, but that might take a while. So most of the main attractions are, are there by Frijoles Canyon. But before the CCC came in and, and built infrastructure in the park, you had to go to what's now, what, the Fry Trail? And that, it's now a hiking trail, which is what we did. We'll talk about that. Um, but back then, that was the road down into the, the monument. That's right. It was very primitive and very steep and obviously a dirt dirt road. So that's how people used to get down into Bandelier. Fortunately, when the CCC came, they made a nice new road. But one of the fun things to do is we thought it was great. When you take the shuttle in, the first stop inside the park is called the Juniper Campground Stop. And that is where the trailhead for the Fry, is it Fray, you think, or Fry? Frey. I don't know. Frey? Frey Fry? Fry, Fry Trail? Frey Trail? I, I don't know. I, we, we don't know <laughs> what the name of the trail okay, is. Okay, it's F-R-E-Y. Okay, so, so look so for it on a map. you want to pronounce that. <laughs> but yeah, we, we, got, we would get off at mm-hmm. the Juniper Campground and take the Fry Trail, <laughs> or Frey Trail, whatever it is mm-hmm. called, 
down into the canyon. And it's, it's only like a mile and a half, uh-huh. about a 500-foot elevation, but it's it's a decline. So you're kind of going downhill the whole time. So, yeah, it's, it's a pleasant walk. It is. And you get some uh, different views than you do, obviously, when you're down in the canyon. And then, of course, you can just take the shuttle from the visitor center when you leave so you don't have to climb back up. So it joins the main loop trail, which has been renamed. It's now called the Pueblo Loop Trail. That's the one most people take to visit all the ruins. It's about a one and a half mile loop through these archaeological sites. And you know what I loved is I loved all those ladders, the short ladders that you could climb and peek into those alcoves. That's pretty cool that they keep those there. Some of them are pretty short ladders and there are some that are pretty tall. Yeah. So depending on your level of interest, you can do some short short ladders and, and peek into those alcoves. And then there's some pretty tall ladders you can go up. Yeah, it said on the website that you could climb into those alcoves. <laughs> you know, when I when I peeked in, it's dark. You couldn't really tell what was in there. So I was pretty happy just climbing the ladder and sticking my head in. I'm not sure I'd get all the way in. <laughs> right. It's just peeking in, I think it's good enough. <laughs> That's right. So if you continue another half a mile, you can go to Alcove House Trail. And I think that's the one you were referring to, Matt, with the really big ladders. <laughs> and there's a couple of them. Mm-hmm. There's one. One uh, kind of big one, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised they let the general public go up those. I am too. And, and you do have to uh, cooperate with the other visitors because there's only one ladder. You can't, you know, so pe- people are already up there, so they want to come down. So you kind of take turns going up and down, but uh, they're good-sized ladders. They are, and it goes up 140 feet. It takes you up to the alcove house, which has a kiva in it, and it's fun to see. But yeah, when you stand on the ground and you look up at those four ladders and how high you're going, it's... Uh, it could be a little nerve-wracking for people. Well, 140 <laughs> feet is, is basically a 14-story building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's up there. But yeah. But it, it's worth going up. It is. It was fun. And like Matt said, you just have to kind of wait your turn. And people are trying to go up and people are trying to go down. But uh, we would recommend it. 25 people used to live up there. So it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big alcove. So you can go further into the canyon, but you have to kind of go back towards the visitor center and pick up the falls trail. And that's about a one and a half miles. That's a beautiful trail, pretty simple, ends up at a fall. So that's a nice, easy hike to do. And and that's, is it 1.5 miles out or round trip? 1.5 miles to the falls. Okay, so yeah. it, it would be a three-mile round mm-hmm. trip if you did it from the visitor right. center. Okay, and, and there aren't any ruins in that direction. However, it is a beautiful hike if you want to stretch your legs and see some scenery. The trail used to go all the way to the Rio Grande River, which is what we had originally wanted to do. But then we found out that because of the massive flooding that they had in 2011 and 2013, basically the trail was washed out. So they had some barricades and you couldn't go any further past the falls. So this is a national monument. Mm-hmm. It's in the National Park Service system, but it could be a national park someday. It might be. So back in 2019, Utah Senator Martin Heinrich introduced a bill that would change the designation of Bandelier from a national monument to a national park and preserve. And I was trying to find out what the status is now. They Apparently, they held a hearing in March of 2020. But then, of course, COVID hit, and I mm-hmm. think everything was put on the back burner. So I don't know where the this legislation stands, um, but who knows? Uh, Bandelier might be our country's next national park. Could be. All right. Well, our next stop on that particular trip was Santa Fe. 
and I, I guess I didn't realize this until we got there, but it's at over 7,000 feet elevation. There was a, a time, I've kind of gotten over this, but there was a time where I was pretty sensitive to elevation. I would get headaches and, mm-hmm. and, and stuff, but uh, so just know it's, it's at 7,000 feet. It's a beautiful, beautiful town and very historic. And we would suggest we stayed in a hotel within walking distance of the plaza, which is a national historic landmark dating back to the 17th century. And what we found out, there's actually a national park site there, right there. See, this is this is why we, we needed the app, and it's good good that we have the app now. I know. So Santa Fe is part of the Santa Fe National Historic Trail, and there is a passport stamp available at the Palace of the Governors. So when you're visiting Santa Fe, make sure you stop and get that. Now, I remember our visit to Santa Fe because you and Lolly tried to turn it into the magic tour. <laughs> There was there was a lot of magic going on. Uh, we had to visit the magic staircase at the at the historic church, the Loretto Chapel, that's right in downtown Santa Fe. Uh-huh. And, and so we'll talk about that. But also we had to go to the town of Chamayo, where there is a there's a church there, a chapel there, and which has, as Lolly said, magical dirt. <laughs> It was the magical church slash dirt yeah. tour. <laughs> and I'm not being disrespectful to people who, who believe in the, the spiritual powers of these places. But but let's back up to the Loretto Chapel because it is pretty impressive. And there is a double spiral staircase built inside the chapel. And the cool thing about this is it was built, one, by an anonymous carpenter. They, mm-hmm. they, they don't really know who he was. I mean, they knew... They knew him when he was there working on it, but he built this incredible staircase with no nails. Right, and no support. And no support. Mm -hmm. And of course, as the story goes, after he built it, he left and never to be seen again. And so so there are a lot of stories about, you know, who who exactly was this? Was this Saint Joseph the Carpenter Mm -hmm. who came to help the the nuns out and build their staircase because they had this this choir area above the chapel that did, they didn't have a way to get up there. And so that's why they needed this staircase. Right. So it's absolutely beautiful to see. We'll post some pictures on the Dear Bob and Sue website, but it's no longer a working chapel. It's not a church anymore. It's privately it's owned. Pri- yeah. And you do have to pay a small fee. I don't remember how much that was to go in and see the staircase. But yeah, we thought it was worth it. It's a cool sight mm-hmm. uh, to see. Another thing we did uh, that was enjoyable in, in Santa Fe, we went over to that uh, rail yard area. Yeah. And that's nice. It has, has shops and, more importantly, has <laughs> the Second Street Brewery uh-huh. that we, we hung out for a while. And this was pre-COVID, so people were at very festive, live music at the brewery. So that was a lot of fun. We went to the, There was an REI right there at the rail yard, so we went and had to load up on other gear. And then after that, we went to the shed for dinner. <laughs> so the shed is a great, very casual restaurant, very popular mm-hmm. down in the um, plaza area. And we had been there before, so we took John and Lolly. Yeah, it was great. Uh, they have really good Mexican food and giant margaritas. <laughs> they do have margaritas. They, they did not tell us this when we were ordering, but I think it's standard that their margaritas are doubles. Uh, and that we, would have been good information to have. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So here's, but here's another pro tip. When you're finished with dinner, don't go back in the bar and order another fishbowl margarita. 
and that's probably all we need to say. Yes, mm-hmm. um, we would not recommend that. Highly recommend the restaurant. Do not recommend the doubling up on the margaritas. Right. Thankfully, we were uh, just a few blocks away from our hotel that that we were walking to. So it's it's a festive town, historic town, mm-hmm. uh, great food. Yes, you'll want to have at least a day in Santa Fe on oh, your yeah. itinerary yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. The other thing we did that I mentioned earlier is we continued on the magical tour. Only this time, instead of a magic staircase, it was magic dirt. (laughs) Yeah, the way that came about was our hotel desk clerk told Lolly and I that we should go and see a little chapel in Chimeo, which is a Roman Catholic church. And he said that back in the early 1800s, a miracle took place on the spot where the chapel was subsequently built. And now there is a pit of miraculous dirt that contains healing properties. Thought it was magical. (laughs) (laughs) Magical, miraculous, I'm not sure. But he said that visitors are allowed to take some of this dirt home with them. But here's the miraculous part. No matter how much dirt is taken out of this dirt pit. It continues to replenish itself. It's never-ending dirt. Yeah, so you guys wanted to go see the never-ending dirt. (laughs) John and I were skeptical about this. And also, chameo sounds like something I'd put on my sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of does. I have to admit, you're right. But somehow, Lolly and I managed to talk you guys into it. And it wasn't very far away. I I don't know. It didn't take long to drive there. I think it was about 30 miles north of Santa Fe. Lolly was determined to take home some of that magic dirt. Mm -hmm. So while she was in the side chapel filling up her bag, I I was wandering around the, the, the chapel. And outside, I saw a sign on the wall that explained that the dirt wasn't actually replenishing itself. The priests from the church, they collect it from the surrounding hillsides and then they bless it and then they put it in the hole. So not miraculous after all is what you're saying. (laughs) Well, it might still be miraculous, but it wasn't magic. Okay, (laughs) gotcha. (laughs) We also found out when we were there that every year some 300,000 people from all over the world make pilgrimages to this chapel during Easter's Holy Week, many of them walking from Santa Fe, and some walk from as far away as Albuquerque. So even if the dirt isn't magical, it's definitely spiritual to a lot of people. It is, and and just reminds me, like, let's stay away from there during Easter week. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I don't think I'd be able to walk that no, far. <laughs> like, I, I like to avoid crowds. Yeah. Anyway, I remember the look on John's face when he saw Lolly's huge bag of dirt and he asked her, how the hell are you planning to take that home in your suitcase on the airplane? Yeah, she needed, she apparently needed a lot of spiritual help. She said, I'm taking it home. It could have been because we went to the shed the night before and she thought that that magic would help her uh, recover from our dinner at the shed. I, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, that's, uh, that's a, another place that's a day trip from Santa Fe that you can go see. Yeah, it is a beautiful little church. The name is El, if I get, if I can say this right, El Sanctuario de Chimeo. Very nice. That's what it's called. Thank you. So that was a fun thing to see. Now, one thing I wish we would have done while we were in Santa Fe that we didn't is just to the east, about 40 minutes away, is Pecos National Historical Park. And we did not go to see that. And I would suggest to people, because we've heard it's wonderful. And the other thing is they sell our dear Bob and Sue book there. (laughs) I know. 
<laughs> They're one of the few national uh, park sites that sell deer bobbin soup. Mm-hmm. Which they didn't back in 2017, or no. we definitely would oh, have yeah, gone yeah. and signed some books. But since then, they've yeah. started selling our books. Oh, yeah. so. Well, no one's selling our books now because a lot of the visitor centers are closed. But, uh, you know. When they open back up, I'm sure they'll just stack the shelves with Dear Bob. I am sure they will. So we spent a couple days in Santa Fe. Uh, Could have spent even more, but we had to keep going. So we we were heading south. Eventually, we wanted to get to the southern areas. We were going to go to White Sands as part of it. But on our way south... We wanted to stop at Kasha Katui Tent Rocks National Monument. And this is not a National Park Service site. It's managed by the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, but it's managed in partnership with the Cochiti Pueblo Tribe. So it's on tribal land. The monument's open for day use only. Check their website before you go. But that's a very interesting sight to see. It is amazing. The cool thing about Kashikatui is that they have these cone-shaped tent rock formations. And they were made by these volcanic eruptions that occurred about six to seven million years ago. And they left these pumice and ash and tuff deposits that are over a thousand feet thick. So these giant cone-like pinnacles and they are very cool to see yeah the ash deposits in a layer and then as the water and wind eroded it these shapes form kind of cone shaped at the top and the the cool thing about this is there are trails up through them and so we we hiked on the canyon trail and it was about a mile and a half kind of narrow slot canyon really And it was a little bit steep. It was about 630 feet climb up to this mesa top. And the the thing I remember about being up there is the views were incredible. Oh, my gosh. Of the surrounding 360 degree views. It was amazing. And the Slot Canyon was very fun. Here's the thing about Kashikatui. It is all about that hike. Yes. So if you're not a hiker, this isn't a drive-through park. There's nothing to see. It's all about this hike, the Canyon Trail. It's definitely worth the detour over to Kashikatui to do this hike. But one thing to note, there is no visitor center there. There's no water available. They do have some portable toilets, but it's fairly primitive. But a beautiful national monument. I'm glad we took that side trip. It wasn't exactly on our way south. We kind of, It's kind of off to the southwest mm-hmm. of Santa Fe, but we had to keep moving. Yes, because we were making our way. That day, we were making our way all the way down to Alamogordo, right outside of White Sands. So we had a full day. <laughs> so we drove, but about three hours, three and a half hours later, we were kind of, we were just tired of riding in the car. John was tired of driving. And so... We found, just found on Google, another cool site called the Three Rivers Petroglyph Site. And this is also a BLM site, Bureau of Land Management. And what's cool about this is that it has over 21,000 petroglyphs. Uh, so one one of the largest and most concentrated collection of rock art in, in the United States. Yeah, and what I loved about it, too, is, you know, a lot of parks... And rightly so, protect their petroglyphs from the general public by fences and and screens and things like that. And you, you stand away and look at them. This one, you walk right through these 21,000 petroglyphs on this dirt trail. Through It's kind of like a small boulder field. Right. They are everywhere. Yeah. It's fun to climb around them and look for them. It's like a treasure hunt. It they, was. You can find them everywhere. 
And these petroglyphs date back to between 900 and 1400 AD. And I don't know if we already said this, but nobody else was there but us. So yeah, we, we had the place to ourselves. And it has a campground, I think, uh, where, yes. where mm-hmm. RVs can park. That's right. And we had planned to stay for 10 or 15 minutes. And I remember we were there for over an hour and a half, and we still could have stayed longer. Yeah. So that site is about 45 minutes north of Alamogordo. And Alamogordo is, is really the town that people stay in if they're going to go visit uh, White Sands National Park. It was a national monument mm-hmm. uh, that when we went there. But uh, yeah, and it's a pretty quick drive from Alamogordo to White Sands. I mean, it's essentially almost like a, a suburb. It's 20 minutes away. We got to Alamogordo at around dinner time, So we didn't go into the park White Sands is one of those parks where they have gates and they have opening hours and closing hours. So you can't just go in anytime you feel like it. So we had dinner, had an early night, and then got up the next morning and drove in to see White Sands. Well, now it's a national park. I know. It is. And it's also the most visited National Park Service site in all of New Mexico. About a half million, maybe 600,000 people each year visit it. But, but I bet that visitation's going up. Oh, I bet it is, too, once it became a national park. So it became a national monument back in 1933, but then it became a national park in 2019. And another cool thing about this, I don't know, I think it's cool. Maybe other people won't, but it is adjacent to the White Sands Missile Range. (laughs) So as you're hiking through the park... Uh, there's a chance that you'll find missile parts. Well, you and John were looking we for them. We were looking for them. <laughs> and it's not that we just made this up that, hey, maybe they accidentally dropped a missile. There are signs that say, if you see strange objects in the sand, do not touch them. That's right. Do not pick them up. Do not pick them up. Um, <laughs> Which is, I'm sure, great advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But occasionally the park closes for an hour or two or three when the White Sands Missile Range is doing some kind of active duty around there. So you, you should check the website before you go. One interesting thing we learned by talking to the ranger at the visitor center, we were saying something to the effect of, yeah, we're going to go do a hike. We're trying to get the hike in early in the morning so so it wouldn't be too hot. Then we'll probably just sit in long chairs by the side of the truck and have a beer. And the park ranger laughed. He goes, well, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, that's not allowed. For a few months in the spring, alcohol is not allowed in the park. Uh, I thought that was curious. The ranger told us that, well, we are we are not that far from several major universities. And so what would happen is White Sands became the spring break destination <laughs> for for all the college students in the area. And so there were there was a lot of partying. So they had to put a kibosh on the alcohol use in the park for a few months in the spring. And lo and behold, when they banned the alcohol, the college kids stopped coming. <laughs> <laughs> What a shocker. But but it does look like one huge white beach, doesn't it? It it does. It is beautiful. Now, the reason that the sand is white instead of tan, like most sand dunes that you see, is because this sand is made up of gypsum. Which is basically the same stuff your drywall is is made out of. (laughs) That's right. right. That's what drywall Mm -hmm. is made out of. And it was surprising to us because when we, after we checked out the visitor center and we started driving back on the main park road, it felt like we were driving through snow, didn't it? it Even did. it was May. <laughs> John was driving the truck and he kept saying he he was worried that the truck would start sliding. But it, of course uh-huh. it doesn't. However, do not let the illusion that you're in snow or in this winter wonderland trick you because 
it can get hot and it can get dangerously hot. That's right. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, let's mention the trail that we did. There are several trails in the park. The longest one is the Alkali Flats Trail, which is the one we did. Now, first of all, we should say it's not flat. I'm not sure why they called it Alkali Flats. Um, It's about a five-mile round-trip loop. And what they do in the park so that people won't get lost, and this is genius, is that they have these trail markers that they put up, what would you say, Matt, about 100 100 yards away from each other? They do a good job that you should Always be able to see two markers, Mm -hmm. the one you've come from and the one you're going to. And if you're careful to look, you'll always be able to see that. And sometimes they're 100 yards away. Sometimes they're maybe 500 yards away. And, And I was paying pretty close attention. And you can always see the next one. But they're not super close. No, they're not. They are color-coded depending on the hike. So for the Alkali Flats Trail, all of the trail markers were red. And that that also helped to make it easy to spot. But just to clarify something, there, there's no elevation change. The uphill and downhill is due to the dunes. Mm-hmm. There, there's no flat trail through the dunes. You're going up and down dunes. Makes it feel like you're climbing a mountain half the time. That's right. And then falling down one, <laughs> the other half. <laughs> we did roll down a few times, but it was very fun. It's beautiful out there because there it's surrounded by mountains, and then you've got this white sand. And when we were there, it was a beautiful blue sky day. So it is a stunning park. And we had plenty of water, and we got out early in the day. I mean, mm-hmm. it was the first thing we did in the day. We had a quick breakfast, got out there early, but... Unfortunately, it can literally become deadly hot, you know, out there on the sand dunes. You may have read about back in 2015, there was a French couple who died on this very trail. Very tragically, they were hiking with their son and the woman had turned back because she wasn't feeling well and... She hadn't gone very far when she um, she collapsed, and the, the, her husband and son didn't realize that. They continued on, and it wasn't much further that the husband collapsed. Right. They didn't have um, a lot of water with them. They found the boy. He was still alive. They had to get a French interpreter because mm-hmm. uh, they, they only spoke French. You know, when when you haven't been there and you hear a story like that, you you just wonder, like, how can they— how can you die that close to the parking lot? Well, that's right. They were only a mile away from the from their car. As the years went on after that, it happened at least a couple more times. It did. Uh, I was just reading that in September of 2018, a hiker was found deceased on that same trail. He was only a half mile from the parking lot. And then in June of 2019, a visitor from Germany also died on the same trail, less than a mile from his car in the parking lot. So it can definitely be dangerous, and everyone just needs to be aware of that. Uh, the website says, do not start your hike out there if it is 85 degrees or warmer. Right. And have lots of water. They suggest a gallon of water per person. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, we started early. And it was pretty cool, and it was comfortable. But by the time we got back to the truck, we were feeling it. Yeah, I mean, we we mm-hmm. were feeling the heat, and, right? And, and it, this was May, so this this wasn't the middle of summertime. So, uh, yeah, be careful of the heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, on a brighter note, one fun thing there is to do there besides hike is 
people sled on the dunes. Waxed plastic snow saucers work the best. And the gift shop there at White Sands sells uh, snow saucers if you want to give that a try. The park's gates, they open at 7 a.m. And uh, then the closing hours change based on the season. I think in the summer they might be open till 9, but... Earlier in the winter, I think they close at six or seven. And so definitely check the website uh, because they lock the gate and they want to make sure everybody is out before that happens. I'm glad we saw the the National Monument at the time. And and now it's a national park, so we can say we've been there. But uh, our next destination was going to be Carlsbad Caverns. Mm -hmm. But on the way there, we drove to the little town of Ruidoso to spend the night. And that was an interesting town. It's just a little mountain resort town, cute town, about 10,000 residents. Again, also, it sits at about 7,000 feet. It was darling. I thought it was a darling little town. Uh, I wish we would have had more time. It was basically we were just there for a night. But I do remember, Matt, the next morning you went out for a quick walk and you came back and you told us. <laughs> yeah, I said, uh, you said, well, how was your walk? It was nice. I saw a moose and you didn't believe me. I didn't believe you. I, I still was, don't believe you. <laughs> it was, uh, it wasn't a big moose. And like, I don't know how big moose get, mm-hmm. how quickly, but maybe a two-year-old, but it was right there in the parking lot. And then <laughs> it just ambled across the street and I watched it for you know, a good 10, 15 minutes and went down to the creek and just just kept going on. So that was cool. Yes. Who knew that there were moose in New Mexico? (laughs) A moose sighting is always fun. (laughs) That's right. But um, the next day, I think, was the highlight of your entire trip, Matt. (laughs) It was the highlight of the trip. So we had to uh, make our way down to Carlsbad and, and we were sitting at breakfast with John and Lolly discussing, so how how should we get there? And both Lolly and I learned by looking at brochures that the Smoky Bear Historical Park Museum gift shop and grave <laughs> was not that far from town. It was in the town of Capitan, uh, maybe what half an hour away, and it would be in our it, it would be in the general direction we wanted to go. So we had to go. It was like you won the lottery, Matt. It, it was. Um, <laughs> I know I get more excited about smoky stuff than, than I should, but uh, it's kind of, he's kind of my hero. And so when we got to Capitan, the, the first thing we did, there was a little log cabin, cute little log cabin museum that has tons of smoky memorabilia from decades and decades. Well, back from the 1950s. Oh, yeah. When we went in, I, I almost passed out. <laughs> I was so overwhelmed because for a moment, I thought, this stuff's all for sale. I know. And thank Uh, God it wasn't because you would have bought every single thing in that store. Yeah. (laughs) In that museum. Pardon, it wasn't a store. Although they did sell a few things. Yeah, no, that they had a few things, and, and we bought the maximum amount they would let us buy. Uh, <laughs> Posters and T-shirts and t-shirts, things like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Uh, so this is not only the uh, home of the museum, but right next door is then, and I think it's run by the Department of Natural Resources. It's the Smoky Historical Park, mm-hmm. and in there they have really nice interpretive uh, displays. I think this is an interesting story. So why do we have a mascot for the National Forest? So back in the 40s, when World War II came about, what was happening, and it makes total sense when you think of it in in this context, all the young men, 
and for that matter, even middle-aged men, they were all off at war. They had to, right? We had two wars going on. And so if a forest fire started in a national forest, there were no firefighters to send out to, to put it out. And so the Forest Service had to come up with a campaign to basically make people aware that, look, it's up to you to prevent forest fires. I mean, literally, that was the message. That's how they came up with only you can prevent a forest fire because there is no one else. And so they started this uh, public service campaign to make people aware of this. So they needed, they thought they needed a spokesperson. But once they thought about it a while, they thought, well, really, they needed a spokes animal. Uh, so at the time, the movie Bambi had just been released. It was a huge hit. So Disney loaned Bambi to the National Forest Service to be the mascot for the first year of this campaign. And after after the end of the first year, the Forest Service thought, well, this is great. This is fantastic. They just wanted to keep using Bambi. And Disney said, no, like that was a a one-year deal. Bambi's got other stuff to do. She's busy. So they pulled Bambi. So they, they went searching for another spokes animal. They tried all sorts of ideas. And for a while, they tried out a squirrel. No. Yeah. Which That's ridiculous. It, it, it is. Um, it's hard to respect a squirrel. I mean, like if you know, if a squirrel comes into your campground and is like waving his paw at you, like you have mm-hmm. to prevent a forest fire, you're, you're not going to pay attention to a squirrel, right? That's right. Um, mm-hmm. So what happened is a convergence of coincidences. There was a fire in the area of Capitan in the National Forest. And as firefighters were combing through the wreckage, they found a burnt baby bear cub, a black bear. They rescued it. It had some burns on its paws. One of the rangers took it in and, and nursed it back to health. They, they First, they called it Hotfoot Teddy. But it got so much publicity, this bear, that they got this idea that that would be a good mascot for the National Forest Service. And so they changed his name to Smokey Bear. And he's was an actual bear that came from right there in the area of, of Capitan, New Mexico. And then didn't he move to Washington, D.C.? He had he had a, a, a pretty good life after that. They, <laughs> he was like a celebrity. They moved into the National <laughs> Zoo, um, and he lived there. He was a mm-hmm. celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, he has his own zip code. And so if you just put Smokey Bear and you put the zip code 20252, It'll get to him in Washington, D.C. But anyway, yeah, he lived there till 1976. And then when he died, they brought him back to Capitan, New Mexico, and they buried him there next to the historical Mm -hmm. park. They planted a little wooded section and a little trail that takes you to his grave. And so we went and looked at that. It was it was very emotional. I love Smokey Bear. Who doesn't? Like you you love Smokey uh, maybe Maybe a little too much. And that's coming from somebody who's pretty obsessed with Smokey. Because when I go back and look at the photos we take from uh, you know our travels, and, and oftentimes we have to stop and take our picture with the Smokey statue, right? Mm. He's usually showing you what the fire uh, danger rating is for that day. Um, I noticed that you always hold his hand. <laughs> And then, then when I was looking at the photos from the National Historic Park, you're holding his hand. So is this something I should be concerned about? 
No, I don't know what it is about Smokey. Maybe it's the fact that he's so big and strong, or maybe it's because he's not wearing a shirt. <laughs> okay. I don't know. He's good. The hat? Maybe the it's the hat. hat. Mm-hmm. The Smokey belt buckle? His big shovel. Okay, that's, we, should, we should just stop right now. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll move on. But if you are in New Mexico, you've got to go to Capitan and check out a whole square block of the town. And uh, it was amazing to see. Once every five years, we got to go back. We do, for sure. But we had to keep moving. We, we ended up uh, going from there. We went over to Roswell because uh, we wanted to see it, but also it was time for lunch. Yeah, there's not a lot to see in Roswell. I, I think most people know it for the alien saga that began in the summer of 1947 when the U.S. Army Air Force sent out a shocker of a press release announcing that they'd recovered a flying saucer that had crashed on a ranch near Roswell. After that, the government proceeded to change its story several times, and now more than 70 years later, it's still Roswell's claim to fame, and the wild theories continue to exist. Was it a flying saucer, a weather balloon, a spy craft? Yeah, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but there is an alien museum there that we didn't have time to go to. Um, the only thing we saw as far as aliens is we saw a lot of alien heads painted <laughs> on the storefront windows. Uh, I wish I could have gotten one of those T-shirts, though, that says, I was abducted by aliens. And then it has an arrow that points to you <laughs> standing next to me. <laughs> and then everyone would say, oh, that explains everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So from there, we headed to Carlsbad, where we were spending two nights. We had enough time, and we planned it this way, that we could go into Carlsbad Caverns National Park and get there by dusk so we could watch the bat flight program in the amphitheater. And that was amazing to see, wasn't it? It was. But please tell me you're not going to talk about Carlsbad Caverns again. (laughs) No. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time left. But fortunately, we already have an entire episode about Carlsbad Caverns National Park, and that is episode seven. Carlsbad Caverns is my obsession. I love Carlsbad. So everything you'd ever want to know is on that episode, and we're going to skip repeating ourselves. Uh, Two things I will mention, though, in case you haven't listened to that and you're planning to go, is if you want to do a ranger-led tour, which we highly, highly recommend, Buy your tickets online ahead of time. Anyone can show up and do the self-guided tour in the big room. But if you want something extra, get online ahead of time and get your tickets. The other thing was to make sure you check out the Bat Flight program, which we've already mentioned. Yeah, so you can listen to Episode 7 for more details Mm -hmm. there. Now, the other thing, I know this is a New Mexico episode, but uh, if you're down there, you should definitely tack on Guadalupe Mountains National Park. Even though it's in Texas, it's right south of of the New Mexico border, not that far from Carlsbad Caverns, about 40 minutes away. Uh, Guadalupe Peak is a fantastic hike. It's it's a difficult hike, Mm -hmm. but but great views at the top. And also McKittrick Canyon is a pretty area. There's a trail there. Uh, It's fairly easy and it's beautiful. We we were there in the fall. And so when the colors change, it's beautiful. So we did stop back by there with John and Lolly too and hiked Guadalupe Peak before we made the trek back up to 
Albuquerque to fly home. So that was fun. Yeah. I mean, how often are you ever going to be down there again to check out Guadalupe Mountains National Park? So we would highly recommend you add that onto your New Mexico itinerary. Yeah. And if you're going to do this itinerary the way we did it, as you're on your way back to Albuquerque to fly out, you, you got to do a self-guided Breaking Bad tour <laughs> of Albuquerque. For all you Breaking we Bad fans. To, we had to look up Walter White's house and, and just in a, a residential neighborhood. And as we were driving out, I said, I wonder if anyone actually goes by this house and that, you know, does anyone really know that this is the Walter White house? And we get there, the woman who owns the house, she's in her front yard in a lawn chair, basically defending her house from the public (laughs) signs that say, you know, Mm. no parking, do not throw a pizza on my roof, (laughs) which I don't blame her. No, I don't either. But it was pretty popular. Yes, because on the show, of course, they say the address many times. So we drove by. It was pretty fun to see the house looks exactly like it does in the show. Of course, and then we also stopped at the restaurant um, Los Los Pollos Hermanos. Is that what it was called? Yeah, the Chicken Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Which is no longer a chicken restaurant. No, I don't think it ever was. It was like a burrito (laughs) restaurant or something. Yeah, But, but that was fun. And the other two tour we did, which we'd highly recommend, is a brewery tour because Albuquerque has some amazing breweries. And there was a section of town that had, gosh, at least four of them that we went to and sampled some beers. And so that was fun. So that was our trip. On a different trip to New Mexico a few years earlier, we did do another National Park Service site which we should talk about because you could you could also tack this on mm-hmm. if you're in Albuquerque, which is the Petroglyph National Monument. That's just on the west side of Albuquerque, easy to get to. Now, the thing about Petroglyph National Monument is there is a visitor center, but there are no trails at the visitor center. You actually have to drive to one of three separate canyons. There's Boca Negra, there's Rinconada, and there's Piedras Mercadas Canyon, which is the one we did. And that's the only one we did, Mm -hmm. but I do remember they're just petroglyphs everywhere in the little boulder field Mm -hmm. um, over where the petroglyphs are. I mean, they're, they're everywhere and and it's pretty cool. It is cool. The downside about that was that there is a neighborhood. There are many neighborhoods that surround this Canyon. You're looking at houses and, you know, people are walking their dogs and, uh, yeah, it's not a wilderness experience at but, all, but, no. it, but it is a cool historic site. Mm-hmm. Lots of great petroglyphs to see. So that was our trip to New Mexico. A lot to see and do. Yeah. Now, White Sands was a national monument when we were there. And now it's a national park. Mm-hmm. And Bandelier, there's talk that it's a national monument now. But it might become a national park. So if we go to these places when they're national monuments that, but then become national parks, does it still count? That's a really good question. In fact, people ask us that all the time uh, because in the last two years, there have been four new national parks, right? So White Sands, the Gateway Arch, Indiana Dunes, and now New River Gorge. So yeah, so what do you think? If you went when it was a national monument and you got the stamp and you did the hike and you got the photo and then it becomes a park, do you have to go back for it to count? Well, and some (laughs) people get frustrated with us when we talk this way, because this is a tongue-in-cheek conversation, right? Because of course it counts. It's (laughs) not that the, the place was, whatever its designation was when you see it, it's just more important that you see it and you enjoy it and you experience it, but it does give you a good reason to go back. 
It does, right? Because I would like our picture with the national park sign. Oh yeah, you got to get the mm-hmm. sign. And I hate to point this out, but technically now, since we have never been to New River Gorge, we haven't visited all the national parks. So. No, we haven't. But uh, yeah, we'll fix that. I don't know. Maybe maybe this year. Yeah, I think we're planning a visit in the fall, hopefully, so we'll be able to get ourselves current again. Yeah. The Land of Enchantment is a perfect slogan for New Mexico, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's fitting. We need to come up with a catchy slogan like that for our podcast. I think it would really take us to the next level. <laughs> you want to call it the, the Podcast of Enchantment? <laughs> uh, no, we might need more than a couple of seconds to think about that. <laughs> if you enjoyed our Dear Bob and Sue Podcast of Enchantment... We know you'll enjoy our Dear Bob and Sue books as well. There are three of them in the series, and you can buy the paperback, the Kindle version, or the audiobook on Amazon.com. Just search for Dear Bob and Sue. If you have a question for our monthly mailbag episode, a topic idea for a future episode, or a slogan suggestion, send us an email to mattandkarensmith at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. You can go to facebook.com slash dearbobandss or you can find us on Instagram at Matt and Karen Smith. You know, Karen, every episode <laughs> we create show notes <laughs> and those have links at the bottom that will give you more information about what we discussed. There's also a link where you can view the photos from our New Mexico trip. Go to www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. Click on the Episodes tab in the menu bar and then click on the title for Episode 34. Our show wouldn't be possible without our wonderful producers at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon, the designers at Expert Subjects who created our cover artwork, and musician Will West who performed our catchy theme music. You know, Matt, after listening to you go on and on about Smokey Bear, I'm not sure which one of us has the bigger crush on him. Oh, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm not going to be holding his hand anytime soon. (laughs) 